Welcome to the No Normal. New Music Edmonton presents The No Normal, a podcast series featuring the words and works of creative sonic artists from central Alberta and beyond. In a moment, NME's artistic director Ian Crutchley will introduce the subjects of this installment of The No Normal. But first, New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwichiwiskaigan is the traditional gathering place of the many indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for, and have remained exemplars of, the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. It is from these principles that New Music Edmonton has sought and will continue to seek partnerships, inspiration, and learning. For more information about NME's programming and events, look us up on social media or visit our website, newmusicedmonton.ca. And now, here is Ian Crutchley. Hello. In this episode of The No Normal, we're featuring an interview I did with renowned santorist and composer Mehdi Rezanya. In addition to being an amazing artist and a great conversationalist, Mehdi is fantastic at helping understand his instrument, explaining the underlying traditions of Persian music, and talking about the many, many ways his creativity folds into the context of solo music, collaborations, and the compositions that he creates for other performers. Along with our conversation, we're including lots of excerpts from Midi's recent album, Gens of Radif, as well as from some of the compositions he's written for other performers. As usual, information about all of these is included on the written intro accompanying the podcast. For some reason, I was thinking about this myself the other day, which is what what is the first sound that I remember? So I'm wondering if you can kind of reach back. What is the first time you remember noticing sound and finding it interesting? It's a very good question, actually. When I saw that, uh, I haven't even asked myself. I remember that the earliest memory of music, the music that really touched me. But uh, sound, I don't exactly, I can't say a, like a date or a, an event that I remember just the sound. In fact, it was later in my career that I was intentionally was aware about sounds beyond music. And something that I noticed uh, was that when, when I go out, outdoor activities, it's mostly about the uh, experiencing of the sound that I go and not just the nature, like beauty of nature. And because my presumption was that we go outdoor to experience the uh, the visual aspect of it, or feel the earth, feel the trees, and nature, and grass. But um, especially right now, I'm uh, mostly aware of the uh, the quality of sound. If I go to a park and it's there is a highway beside it, I don't feel that I'm, I'm outdoor. 
I want to experience that quietness or that nature sound more than the visual aspect of it, which is, of course, very nice. But in early ages, I, I wasn't aware of that uh, quality. And uh, perhaps sound for me was either music and what is not music is was just sound. And I wasn't aware of differentiating between a good sound and a bad sound, like the, the, the noises that would bother you and the noises that surrounds you. And um, it's bothering you, but you're not aware of it, such as like highway or sirens or these things. But, but later... I was very aware of it and silence and the, the natural sound of the environments. You do mention silence in some of the descriptions of your pieces as being quite important to, to your work. But I was just thinking about when you were saying parks and highways, of, I'm not sure we would ever want to say there was anything really good about the pandemic, but there was that sort of brief period where Edmonton was really quiet. Right. And you could go outside and there wasn't the ambience of cars and things. And it was really amazing to hear. That would have been interesting to go around Edmonton because of the difference. Different neighborhoods have different sounds. You know, when there was no cars around, it was amazing how much detail you could hear. And sometimes people are not quite aware of it. That's when, when they're watching something, when they're seeing something and they're enjoying it. We are mostly aware of the visual aspects. They're not aware that the sound component of that experience especially nature. What about music itself? What do you remember as being basically your earliest memory of, of perceiving something as music or maybe even something about music that made you feel like it was a special thing to you that, that maybe you wanted to pursue it as a sort of an artist or, or just out of curiosity? I think around age um, five, six, some of the music that my father uh, used to listen to, like... Um, Classical, he used to listen to a lot of classical Persian music. And uh, one of them, I remember the singer, he's very famous right now, uh, Shahram Nazari, he's like a legend. I really liked his music. And I remember having uh, like a toy uh, guitar that they bought for me. I don't know if I asked or they just bought for me. And it didn't make any tone, but I imitated playing because the, 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 the instrument they play is tambour, which is a similar fretted instrument. And I vaguely remember that somehow I, I knew that when I'm hitting the strings, it's not the tone that they're playing. But I, I tried to imitate the, the lyrics, which was um, from Rumi. And Rumi's poetry, is, some of the poetries have this um, quality that's understandable to everybody. Like he doesn't use as a complicated words or sentences, but on the second level, the meaning is deep. So it's easy for like even a child to uh, memorize that. That, that was my, one of the earliest time that I remember I really enjoyed imitating, singing and playing. But uh, it wasn't uh, pursued until age uh, 13 that uh, I listened to another tape of my father was a Santur player, a legendary Santur player, Parviz Meshkatian. And uh, we had actually one Santur. My grandfather had bought one for me and my brother a year before, but I had no interest in that instrument. My brother used to go to class and my parents encouraged me to go with him. So both of us would learn, but I didn't show any interest. So I didn't uh, play it until uh, about a year after that. I listened to that tape and I said, okay, I, I, want, I want to play that. The same week I started Santu. Are there other musicians in your family? 
and my cousins, but not not the generation before me. Music sounds like it was kind of a given in your household, though, that if there was music playing all the time. And I, I actually share that with you. My own parents were not musicians per se, but there was always music in the house, lots of records. And at one time, my three siblings and I all had a record player of our own. So <laughs> sometimes there were four different kinds of music playing in the house, which might have impacted me as a composer. I don't know. But. Yes, I think it's quite important. Going back to the being aware or not aware about the sound, I think in childhood, it, it, really, it could really impact uh, sensitivity to music or to sound when it's mostly um, played at, at, at the space that we uh, grow up. You see uh, the joy in your parents, like when they're, when they're listening to music, they might react something, they might sing something to it. And uh, unconsciously, you see, you see that enjoyment and then somehow um, you want to imitate that or you want to, you're, you're curious about that. So you decided on the Santour partly because there was one in the house, um, but also because you got to hear some, some recordings. Can you remember what the first lesson was with Santour? Like how, how did it go when you showed up with your Santour and went to your teacher and said, I want to learn? Yes, exactly. I remember the exact, my first lesson I remember and a lot of these classes because I really enjoyed going to the classes. It was private classes that I went to on weekend. Well, it was a very small town. I grew up in a very small town and there were, I, there were just two Santur teachers in that town. The method of teaching was uh, by books, notations, but uh, they were not professional performers or teachers. Like one of them was playing very good, but he wasn't, he was a good teacher, but he wasn't able to transmit that knowledge. For example, he, uh, he taught me the notations and we followed the notations, but he wasn't specific at the notations. And that was just him, not, not all the teachers. And so I was relied on uh, recording as well. He would teach a lesson the notation, the score, and he recorded that. So I would listen to it, then uh, play the notation. And this uh, only lasts about uh, a year and a half, two years, because uh, at, at some point I realized that um, I changed one, one teacher. I went from the first one to the second one. That was the all option. And then uh, at some point I realized what I was going to play. Like we, we reached at a level that I wanted to play a piece by that musician that I started to imitate, Mishkatyan, and he was a virtuoso. And I realized my teacher is not able to teach me those pieces. So um, for about six, seven years, I just, I didn't go to the class anymore. There was no point. When I graduated from high school, I went to the capital city of Tehran to study there at university. And um, there were a lot of uh, good musicians at the capital city. So I was able to uh, take uh, some courses with uh, Ardavone Komkor, who was another musician I wanted to learn his style. He had a very progressive, avant-garde style in Iranian music, and a lot of traditionalists criticized him. But among the younger generation, he was very famous. For about eight, nine months, I studied with him, and then... After that, parents wanted to immigrate to Canada. So we came to Canada and then again, I continued on my own. Right. Okay. So what year did you come to Canada then? 1998. You were talking about the um, physicality of playing the instrument. And when I've watched you play, 
it's not hard to understand in theory how the sound comes from the instrument. You you know, you have mallets and so on, but it's a very striking kind of and I suppose every instrument requires a precision of one kind or another. But how long does it take to really develop the skills so that the tones come out in such a beautiful way, in a way that uh, allows you basically to move on and perform these compositions that you were interested in? The method of Santuri, usually they divide it into three periods of beginning, intermediate, and advanced. And every period takes about two to three years, depending on practice and ability of the students. For me, it took about that time, about um, eight, nine years to be able to play uh, the most of the pieces that I wanted to play. And then, of course, after that, like it's like the graduation from university. And then you think you have a degree and you know the arts, everything. And then you, you, but you realize that, no, you, you just know how to educate yourself. The advanced level just begins and never ends, I guess. So the, the, the Santur is um, a hammered dulcimer type instrument. But it has mind-boggling history that I, I, I'm not sure this is entirely true, but I know there are records of at least like instruments dating back to six or so hundred years BC. Is that correct? Yes. Um, the earliest document they have from uh, Hammer Dulcimer is from uh, Babylon. And there is a carving that shows uh, a group of people, and one of them is a dulcimer player, and it's hanging uh, with the straps on his neck because he's playing while standing for the king or nobleties. Uh, and that is believed to be the, uh, where the instrument originated from. And then, like other instruments, uh, other cultures see it and it travels. So it's been uh, performed all across the world, from China to uh, Europe, to uh, North America in different genres, of course, and, in, uh, and uh, of course, people have modified it. Um, one Santur player probably cannot play the Santurs of other cultures, but uh, in the, like one region, the, the, uh, there are many similarities. For example, the Iranian version and the Iraqi version are exactly the same, but the Indian version is different and the Chinese version is very different from Iranian and so on. So as you distance geographically, the instrument keeps changing. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit, just a couple of technical things about yours. So, you know, basically it is a um, structure that has strings that are tuned um, and you strike it with mallets. Are the mallets, do they have a particular name or are they, I mean, we just call everything mallets in Western classical music, you know, but. We call it mezrob, which literally means striking what you strike with. And what are, the, what are those made of? Mostly from uh, walnuts or rosewood. They're wooden, they're very fragile. During the uh, beginner and intermediate level, you break a lot of them. Sound that comes from the strings, and the strings are made of steel, I believe. Steel and brass. I would say the only problem with Santur is that there are a lot of strings. For mine, there are 72 strings, and sometimes there takes a lot of time to get to the right tuning that you want. Every four string is one tone, so those four has to be exactly the same. So but you have to do the tuning yourself? That's right. Does it have to be tuned every time you perform? Depends to the weather changes, depends to the where you keep it, but uh, not every time, no. Do you do that by ear or do you use a tuning machine? I use the tuning machine. It's 
faster to go. Tuning machine and ear, like a combination of both. Sometimes I just don't look at the tuning machine and go by muscle, but when I'm not sure, just want to double check it and look at the tuning machine. The tuning machine is always there for me. When you're performing, do you have different instruments for different performances and pieces, or do you basically have one that you always use? I have three instruments because I keep them for different tunings, depending on the program I'm required, because the instruments... One of my instruments has one more bridge, like 10 bridges. I ordered that specifically to perform uh, my own compositions. But the, the nine bridges, is um, I usually like take the nine bridge to the performance, formal performances, and I tune it accordingly to that for that program. Your training was originally in traditional Persian classical music. 
again, as with the instrument, there's a long history that that has evolved. From what I've read from your own notes, the the music that you play now is not necessarily exactly what was played hundreds of years ago necessarily. But some of the things that are, are really basic to it are this very relatively complicated anyway theory of modes. And I was wondering if you could just outline the idea of the modes in your music a little bit. Persian music system is called Radif or Dasko system. And it's a relatively uh, new musical system. It was established around 150 years ago. Before that, in the um, Western Asia, from uh, Turkish, Arabic, and Iranian music, were following one modal system called Magham, which is uh, very close to the um, European modes, like uh, church modes. So they, in, in, in Europe, they had church modes and in the eastern of Europe in that uh, region they had uh, other modes of course there are, there are differences and there are different intervals and uh, rhythmic system but uh, they knew how to play each other music for example an Iranian musician knew how to play a Turkish and Turkish knew Iranian for some reasons in Iranian uh, of like about 150 to 200 years ago they started playing differently from the other Muslim countries, other regions. And then it, this, this new system established. And the difference is that in this system, instead of playing modes freely, modes are compiled into 12 grouping systems. Every group is much like a suite in Western music. A number of pieces played in an order. It's like a program. Dasko is the same. It's there, there are a number of modes, and every mode has few pieces between uh, 15 to 25. And together, they uh, construct a program. So it, this program is flexible. It has rhythmic and non-rhythmic pieces. Both of the rhythmic and non-rhythmic pieces have some characteristic that performer has to learn. Like there are the, 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 the tonic how to start it, how to finish it, how to establish certain melodic motifs that has to be present there. But all these characteristics are uh, subjected to extemporization. So you can improvise, but it's not completely free improvise. There are regulations that you have to stay within that border. And of course, through these hundred years, when, when there are borders, but the borders are flexible, eventually some people come and extend that borders, stretch them. Right now we have multiple styles of not just santur playing, but in Persian classical music. So there is, no, there is not just one traditional way, but there are many. You learn uh, some of them and then, uh, of course, come up with your own style. So improvisation it does play a big role in this music. And so it would be very, yeah, it'd be very easy for us to assume that it's free improvisation of some kind. But what kind of strictures are there on those improvisations? So, you know, if, it, if there was a timeline of somebody's performance, you know, what would be improvised and what would be something that was fixed for the performance? Mostly these days, um, it is custom to uh, improvise on non-rhythmic pieces. There is more uh, freedom because there is, the, the rhythm is free. So you can extend the sentences, right? And you can stop where you want or don't stop. But uh, with rhythmic pieces, uh, there is less tendency to 
modify them. In the past, they used to, they used to modify everything. And um, sometimes I follow that path. Like I, I, when I place a piece from someone, if I'm not teaching that, if I'm not presenting that piece exactly, I'd like to modify it sometimes. Uh, I think it, it's, it's beautiful because it gives agency to, to be performer, which was the idea of Persian music. Because there is a concept we call HAL, H-A-L, which means, literally means now. And that concept is that whenever you perform, you have to be aware about your surrounding. You have to be aware about your audience. And based on that, you select the path of your programming. So you, you just don't come on stage with a set program and then you just execute it. You, you look at people and you look at around you and that gives you how much you can add or modify sentences that in, in that improvisation and in, improvisation is very much encouraged to be conscious activity relating to the environment around you and the audience. For me, um, improvisation is becoming like when I perform, I don't do much improvisation. It seems so, but like the, the last program that I performed, maybe 95% of it was just set and very little of it I modified. Uh, because um, it gives me more um, ability to focus on details, to focus on dynamics, instead of changing the sentences completely, instead of creating a new sentence that's on the uh, stage. And um, that, that's how for me. But th of course, there are some people that like to improvise 50% of the program in Persian music. So it varies. That brings up an interesting and a really important question about you, which is that you are you identify as a composer as well as a santur player. Now, I don't assume that those things are distinctive necessarily in, in the tradition of Persian music, but as you well know, Western music has over the years developed this really sharp distinction where you're now either a composer or a performer, and if you do both, you're lucky because you can make money performing. <laughs> right. <laughs> I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about at what point along the way composition became, you know, of such importance to you, became kind of the main part of your, your work with the Suntour. At, um, when I came to Canada, actually, it, it, I was very interested to know about Western-style composition, uh, not particularly to uh, integrate it with Suntour, but I knew that of Suntour players who have uh, composed pieces like for Suntour and orchestra, like Suntour concertos or they've composed santur uh, with uh, violin, with other instruments. And it was very interesting for me to, to know some basic rules like harmony and counterpoint and expansion the melody. And that was why I uh, enrolled in music program at York University in Toronto. At the same time, uh, I founded a group with my wife, my girlfriend at the time. It was very helpful because it gave me the opportunity to, to compose and perform it, to have the, that experience that I'm part of the composition and also could hear it. Later, I realized that composers who don't perform may not be able to, uh, to hear all they want to compose, right? You have to have an ensemble or find some ensemble. For me, it was the ensemble was not like solid. I could change the members based on the composition. So if I wrote a piece for Santur and two violin, and the next program would be that ensemble. And then if, if I wanted to play just Persian classical music, I would hire Iranian musicians and then write in that style. 
that, that was a great uh, opportunity and experience for me. As I learned the music, I was able to, not all of them, but most of them, to execute them, have a first-hand experience on that. And then, of course, when you learn Western classical music, there is a, a lot of its styles, a lot of ways to grow. And then that became a thing in itself. Mm -hmm. So there's been a sort of a strong influence then of the actual instruments that you've written for to go with Suntour, but also some of the some of the stylistic things as well. Right. If you're composing strictly for Suntour, what kind of process do you use? Like, how do you go about it? You know, I know, for example, a lot of your music is, I don't want to use the word programmatic necessarily, but there is reference in summer to the seven different stages of a day, for example. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you conceive of a composition like that and how does it gradually develop from a plan into perhaps a score and then a performance? In the past 10 years, composition for me means what I like from composition is to compose not just a short piece or one, one small piece, but a series of pieces that construct like a story. I, I really love the, the idea of a story in anything, in, in composition, painting, in music, poetry, a story that might have a message that has it, like a story could have dynamics. Dynamics could be day and night. Dynamics could be low and high. Dynamics could be uh, extended to a variety of things. For example, in summer, I thought, well, one day of summer has many dynamics. Before the day starts, you're getting up and you're almost asleep and you have that dream, you have some plans, and then it's not that warm, but in the afternoon, it becomes very warm, so it's different. Then it might rain, and then you have different sounds and, the, and, and different weather, and so on. When I compose for Santur, I use both the instruments. I record some of it. I begin by, by some ideas and then perform them. I uh, record them. If I like the recording, then I write the notation. And then the next day I come back to it. I start like adding to it, modify it. Sometimes I don't start like with a story. I start with a piece, but my idea is that how can I create a story from this piece? What does it resemble? One, one of the ideas was inspired by the four seasons of Vivaldi, and it's very famous. Everybody loves it. Those dynamics that you can feel the season. And uh, I was always interested in that sort of imitation of the day or season into uh, music. And uh, interestingly, in, in traditional Persian music, they used to play modes on a specific seasons or a specific times of the day. They, they didn't say don't play this here or there, but they said it is preferable to play, for example, major in, in the morning. It suits your, your soul and your body and the season. And th that idea was also there that I knew about this. What I chose about this composition was my own idea that I thought this mode would resemble the summers of Edmonton that I've experienced here, which is very similar to actually Iran, because summers in Toronto are very different, very humid, it could be very hot, it could be very rainy for a few days, and it's different.
So the the mode that uh, you mentioned with this piece is is uh, forgive me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, but abuata. Exactly. And you've described that as being a warm and relaxed mode. So referencing back to the idea of modes, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how a particular mode, either to you personally or just in the larger sort of understanding of this music, becomes warm and relaxed. What makes it a warm and relaxed mode? I, I forgot to mention this. One of the differences that I'm arguing actually in my thesis in Persian music compared to um, some of the other cultures is that there is a, a strong emphasis on melody. We define some modes based on the melodic motifs, not because of the intervals. For example, Abu Atwa that I played has the same uh, the intervals with two other modes, exact same interval and exact tonic. But the way the melody is presented, it has some characteristics that a listener could identify that, oh, this is Abu Atwa. It's very subtle. This form of the melody, how, how the, uh, the melody um, prolongs in Abu Atta, performing the Abu Atta from other musicians and listening to them gave me that sort of relaxation that it, it doesn't have tension. In every dasko of Persian music, of course, there is, there is a rise to zenith, the tension is built, and then there is a release at the end. But the tension is not that much in this mode. It comes to the tension and quickly resolves. If you imagine the C minor natural, the only difference is that A is a quarter tone. So A is about 40 cents above A flat. And that's, that's a very important tone in this mode as well, because the tonic we call shahid, the tonic is C. After the tonic, we have another important uh, tone, similar to like dominant in Western music, in Persian classical, it's not always positioned on the fifth. It could be fourth below or third below. In this case, it's fourth below. So tonic is C, and the, uh, the second important tone we call namoyan is G. But there's also another tone we call east or a stop. That, that, that's an important tone where, where you, you have to pause on that tone, but it's not the final pause. This is part of the music that just strikes me as so beautiful. And I've kind of always loved border tones and things anyway, so uh, <laughs> so I'm particularly attracted to it. But one of the things I noticed when you're performing last week is there is so much sound when you play. Maybe not all the time. Of course, there are some moments of a very quiet and restrained sound, but the combination of these very particular modes... I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's part of the Santur. There's just a lot of residual sound that comes from it. Notes that sort of resonate after they've been struck. A colossal complex of sound. To me, it's just absolutely joyous. I think for me, the um, quarter tone notes within the scales or within the modes are perhaps the clue to that in a large, large degree. With regards to the amount of sound that the Santur plays, in the playing of it, is there only simply striking of the notes, or do you do other things? Do you use your fingers to damp notes? Is it ever plucked, for example? Those kinds of things? Traditional way, they didn't use anything else except striking the strings. But right now, yes, they use the back of the mezra, they use fingers. I have compositions that I play a number of pitches with fingers only. The new generation are experiencing more with the sound of the instrument and like creating extended techniques. 
especially the uh, gentleman I studied with the end uh, before I come here, Ardavane Kamkar, he's famous for creating uh, a number of extended techniques for Santur and extending the virtuosity of Santur, like creating passages and techniques that, as you correctly observed, would present a lot of sounds. I, I use some of those techniques as well. traditional Persian music, if, if you listen to the older recordings, you rarely see any silence. They just played and played and played. In the past 20, 30 years, there has been a great tendency, not just for Santu, but in other uh, Iranian instruments, there is a great tendency of uh, extending the virtuosity, adding more complicated phrases and uh, multiple changes of dynamics and multiple changes of rhythms and making it complicated. And for me, in the past few years, I, with my last album, I, I wanted to do reverse. I wanted to create more silence, more simplicity. If I want to present a piece, can I present it in a very, very simple way? I was uh, inspired by the like, minimalism and Arvo part, especially, that uses a lot of simple tones in creating a long piece. Of course, there are many others that do did that, right? And John Cage did that as well. That was very, very interesting for me. And I thought, well, can I do that with, with Persian music and without distorting the, the characteristic? And I come up with that, that project for James of Radif was basically based on that idea to present the Radif, the, that, the traditional pedagogy and musical system, not in a virtuoso, but in a more simplistic way and uh, with as much as silence as possible to be able to stop and think about those gems, those little phrases, instead of performing them one, two, three, four, five, right uh, one after each other without that um, pause between. It is called Gems of Radif. What exactly do you mean by gems? My idea of gems is that, as I mentioned, there is a lot of emphasis on melody in Persian music. I noticed that these, these melodies, some of them are very beautiful, but very short. How come I can highlight those melodies? How can I bring those little gems outside and present them in a different way? And so I 
tried repetition and silence to interpret those gems differently, to show them in a different manner. Silence gives us some time to reflect on what we heard, and repetition does the same thing. And it's interesting that both of them, they contradict each other, because repetition of sound is sound, and silence is thought to be the, the void of sound. But in this way, I thought they, they function similarly, bringing one, sim- one, one idea, one phrase, one melody into the mind and gives us some time to ponder on that before going to the next. I think it's a function of getting getting a little bit more mature as an artist that, you know, we start thinking about not only that it's okay for there to be silence, but that it's actually just as interesting. I think so, because when I was younger, I, I didn't want to produce silence much. I just want to play, play, play. And and it's true. Yeah, there are, there are a number of people in all the arts, I think, that as they got a little further along, started to find find more attraction in, in re- reduction and simplifying things but it becomes more complex i think doesn't it in a way it's simplifying in terms of how much there is but it's more complex because there's more to think about the more there is the less you have to think about any one thing exactly when when you appreciate silence and then say with which tone or phrase i want to break this silence should i use this or not and then you become even more alert on, on the, those tones it's a little like uh well, we were talking earlier about being outside, because if you really do want to listen to an individual sound outside, you have to choose it and focus on it, you know? So if there's a bird making a particular sound that you want to hear, you sort of have to filter everything else out. Right. Have you been on sound walks? You might've gone on them with Scott Smallwood does them, for example. And it's amazing what happens when you focus and, and bringing that back into music, I think it's a lovely Lovely thing. It certainly jives with my own interests right now, anyway. So. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I very much like it. Soundscape and yeah, sound works.
turning this in quite a different direction, let's talk about collaboration a little bit. Although a lot of your work is for yourself to perform as a solo centrist, there is a lot of collaboration with other Persian musicians, but also with Western music and uh, Western, Western instruments and other things besides. So wonder if you could talk about sort of maybe not necessarily as a value comparison, but just as a comparison of different things. What do you find most interesting about working with other people and within that working with people from different backgrounds? The first interesting thing for me was uh, instruments. Instruments that I don't play have the abilities and capacities that Santur doesn't have. With composition, you're able to create sound that you, you cannot perform. You're not trained to perform that instrument what others could do. And if you get to know the instrument, then you can create uh, a lot of other sounds that you cannot just do it yourself. I think most of composers, after experiencing instruments, come up to favor a few of them more than the others. Maybe despise some. <laughs> right, that's too. My uh, wife was a pianist, so piano was very good for me. And uh, I, of course, I don't know who doesn't like piano. That, that was one instrument that I wanted to um, compose for. And piano has similarities. Like if you see the back of the piano, it's the same structure. Some mallets are striking the tones. Also, similar to Santur, uh, with piano, both left and right hands are doing the same thing in producing the sound. So one doesn't hold a key or frets. Both are doing the same thing. That, that's, that idea was interesting for me as well. Also, I became very interested in uh, a strings, a string quartet especially, because there is a lot of potentials, a lot of possibilities with that a small ensemble. And you learn that financially is also a very good. Like if you compose for a large orchestra, then there is another uh, issue to find an orchestra, right? <laughs> so for this, um, I um, try to extend my uh, styles of composition and then reach out to people I knew. It became a very, very interesting uh, activity. I have uh, recently recorded a number of uh, compositions for a string quartet. It's going to be on my last album. Hmm. There is no Santur. Oh, okay. So uh, this is just you as a composer, really? Yes. It's, uh, it's me. And uh, I had an idea to, to collaborate with some other composers and create one piece together. So that, that is included too, which took longer than we thought because the COVID happened. What's the string quartet's name? It's called uh, Windermere in Toronto. Toronto. Okay, great. So, so uh, that's a recording that's, is it recorded and will be coming out soon or is it? Yes, they, uh, they recorded a, a very good church in Toronto and I hope to release it this year. Oh, we'll look forward to that. Well, how would you describe the compositions um, in, in the sense of like, how do they compare to the work you've written for yourself to play on Centaur? Well, my, my first string quartet was a story of a Santur player that is the most, I would say, the most famous Santur player of Iran in the past hundred years. And he functions like Johann Sebastian Bach for keyboard. So if, if you want to play that instrument, you have to start with his style and master it and go on. So I had a lot of memory with his compositions. And I thought I wanted to make a piece like a, a string quartet that resembles some of his ideas gives the notion of some of his pieces, but uh, I would build on it and extend it. I use some uh, Iranian uh, modes for that composition, but again, they go to different directions. So that was, the, that was the experience to integrate some of the uh, 
Iranian modes into Western styles from uh, one mode to go to major, minor, and then even go uh, atonal, dissonances, all those things. It's a variety of all those things. It's a homage to, to that musician. So do the, the modes that you're using with a string quartet include the quarter tone tunings and things like that? A section of it. The rest are not quarter tones. Like uh, I've <clears throat> modified the quarter tone into flat and sharp to be able to do that. Another <clears throat> limitation for Santur is that it's a diatonic instrument. It's very difficult to play atonal music because you can't change the tones. You have to use different registers for different tones. If you want to have A and A sharp, so A sharp is a four register and A natural is in fifth register, for example, right? Concert harp is the same, isn't it? It's, if you've ever written for concert harp, you have to draw, and you're not writing in keys, you have to draw a map out for yourself of when the pedals get changed. Right. So that you're not asking somebody to play two notes that they can't play at the same time. But it's a fun challenge to do those. Composing for instruments such as violin gives you a lot of options, from extended techniques to, to microtones, to sounds that don't, doesn't even like exist in sound, to the, the way they pluck the instrument or use the harmonics or such. And, and that, that's, that's a fascinating uh, challenge for me, to just step out of Santur and think of an instrument as something else. Actually, it'd be interesting to turn that around. Has, have other composers written for you to perform on Santur? For me, only I had a friend who was interested to, to write for Santur, and I helped him to write a piece, a long piece. Another project I was involved in in Toronto that's a composed, there were a group of us with different instruments, and they assigned instrumentation for every composer. In one group, I played with the clarinets and guitar. In another group, I played with a, a saxophone and a singer. And those composers uh, wrote for Santur. But I know I know of a few composers who have written uh, for Santur. Recently, actually, a composer in Kitchener, I forgot his name, has written a long piece for Santur and choir. They want to play it here in Edmonton sometime in December, and uh, I was approached to play the Santur part. It was a very interesting piece. Is that pro choral? Yes. Ah, okay. That's very cool. I'm going to look forward to, I'm look forward to that. That sounds great. So you, you mentioned a little earlier um, piano, and uh, one of the pieces that you worked on recently is a piece called Ice that is, in fact, for solo piano. And it's from a series called Arctic Series. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that series, and then maybe a little bit about writing for piano and working with the pianist, which is uh, Tolo Ruchenes. Yes. I went to an exhibition in Toronto uh, 12, 13 years ago, and uh, the exhibit was just about the Arctic, beautiful pictures of Arctic, and was very fascinating for me. And when I went back home, I um, thought about it often, and then I searched pictures of Arctic. What interested me most, I began to see that there are elements that could resemble music. For example, there is silence there. There's long silences there, right? But there's also wind. There are also like fascinating colors, which are mostly variety of white, gray, and blue. So I combined these ideas and started making music for different elements. The tangible elements, I thought I would choose three tangible elements, which is... Uh, ice, water, and wind, and three intangible elements, 
coldness, whiteness, and silence. That's they're very uh, bold in that Arctic. Like you, you, you go there, you you feel these elements, and then I began to compose pieces for one one of these elements or a combination of them, and it started with that uh, ice for solo piano and thought the piano has that that like the uh, the uh, the keys that you play could resemble the ice i made a video of it that's how how do i see this combination of those pictures i uh, collected and made a, the music was recorded and i combined it with that those pictures and the second piece is uh, ice and wind which i actually composed here in edmonton under the supervision of uh, Huar Basha. And it was a piece for uh, piano, drums, and um, three uh, winds, which was uh, two saxophone and trombone. Those wind instruments resembles like the wind for me. Combination of piano and drum would resemble uh, the ice. It's been recorded, but I haven't released it. And then the, there, is, there is a third one, which is wind, which is... Uh, I composed for a string quartet. Again, uh, some, uh, a story of Arctic, but in different interpretation, focusing in one element or two or a combination of them. Have you been up to the Arctic? No, unfortunately. You know, when I start thinking about places I'd like to go, going north is one. Because for those reasons you talk about, the, the sort of space and quiet, being around that actual geographic area, though, is something that not many of us do really the cold is not that bad it could be beautiful cold here is not a very comfortable time right yeah it's oh cold is coming the snow is coming and because you're working you you want to go to work you want to go to places and gives you limitation but once once you experience that cold in a different perspective and that whiteness that ice that that lots of ice and lots of lots of ice in different forms and then I think we could, we could appreciate beauty in them, although it's, it's a dangerous beauty. It could be a dangerous beauty if you're not careful, right? But again, still, it's, it's like a mountain.
touching on collaboration a little bit more, just one last thing, which is that um, another work that you did for New Music Edmonton uh, was from last summer, just about a year ago, I suppose. You worked with Good Women Dance Collective, which was Alison Kaus and Marina Fregex. The piece was called Conversations Still and Silent. And so maybe it ties in a little bit with some of these things you were just talking about. Was that the first experience you'd had working with dance? No, it, uh, I had uh, previous experiences with dance, both as being requested to perform for them, or there was a dancer who, who wanted to uh, choreograph a couple of pieces based on my compositions. And that was very interesting for me And back in Toronto. For, for this collaboration in Edmonton, it's always fascinating to for me to work with dancers because when I collaborate with someone, one of the things that is, is interesting for me is that what they're doing or they can do that I cannot. For example, for dance is that in music, we share the rhythm with them, but we don't share the space. Space is important for them, but once we uh, set our instruments, then the space is defined and that's it. We, we don't need to move. So that's a kinetic component of their activity is one thing. And then we both uh, share silence. But for them, the, it's a kinetic silence, usually. And for us, is uh, the sound that is silenced. We talked about this element, the silence, because it was during the, uh, the COVID. This silence was uh, paramount, right? It was, as you mentioned earlier, we experienced silence differently during this period. This collaboration, we thought it's um, appropriate to express that as much as we can. But also we express the, the, the reverse as well. Like in some sections of the uh, collaborations, there is no silence at all. They're constantly moving and I'm constantly playing without uh, changing even dynamics, sound, sound, sound. And then there comes to be a silence. Um, we thought there is silence at night, but COVID showed us that there could be longer silences during the day. Actually, yeah, because it was done under COVID sort of protocols, wasn't it? We didn't do live shows. Right, yeah. They were still wearing masks, I remember. I was separate from them, so the recording, they could hear me, but there was a few meters distance between us. We'll link the video to that um, with the podcast so people can have a look at it. I mean, working with dancers is it's something I've really, since I came to Edmonton, is actually really when I started doing that. And Good Women Dancer old partners of New Music Edmonton. So along with Mile Zero Dance, there's been some some really great things around Edmonton. And they always seem to be looking for interesting music, which uh, is great. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's always fascinating to work with the other disciplines of arts. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other of those sorts of multidisciplinary things on the horizon? I wanted to work with Persian calligraphy and I talked to uh, an artist, but unfortunately, when I came to Edmonton, it wasn't possible to do it because we wanted to do it in person, half improvised, half choreographed work on a stage as he writes based on what he hears. And I play based on the writing. Like we look at each other and it's like the calligraphy is presented. We talked about like, is it, is it possible to communicate that, to transmit that understanding to each other? Because he said that, Anytime that he wants to practice calligraphy, he listens to music. I thought, oh, it's a, that's, that's interesting because I, uh, I have a number of calligraphies. I've collected some of them and I really enjoy looking at them. I said, well, can you listen to music and just based on what you hear, write? Yeah, of course I can. So that's, that's something that I hope to do. Yeah. Is there, is there a plan for that to happen at the moment? Not right now, no. 
the program came as well, and I have to just finish this program for now and concentrate. You were going to the last year of your PhD at the University of Alberta. I'm sure there's a lot of mixed feelings about it because there's a lot of work to do still, of course, but it also means that there is potentially a vision of beyond the student life, I guess, if you want to put, put it that way. So are there some sort of dream works that you're imagining that might take place afterwards or, uh, or maybe even, you know, while you're finishing things off? Well, the academic uh, is, is for uh, teaching, mm-hmm. basically, mostly. Like, you, the idea is that you become a teacher and on the side, you research and everything. But I still like to, to, to compose and perform, and I keep that part of my routine because most of the researchers and, or composers, they don't spend time with the instruments. They want to read or they want to write. Before this, like if you have more time to compose, of course, but it's still I double with it and keep it keep it active. And hopefully, after finishing the program, I'll do much more. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Everything feels a little bit like it's crowded in all of a sudden because right. maybe we might feel a little bit like we're coming to the end of the pandemic. And sometimes feels like there's I don't know if you think this too, but sometimes it feels like everybody's putting a lot of pressure on themselves maybe on other people too, to suddenly be very busy and do a lot that we weren't able to do for the last two or three years. I think people need to calm down. Let's just do what we can right now, and we'll see how it goes. Exactly. Thank you very much, Mehdi. It was great to have this conversation. That brings us to the end of this edition of The No Normal. New Music Edmonton is a not-for-profit organization, generously supported by the Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, SOCAN Foundation, Alberta Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis, CJSR Radio, and the City of Edmonton. A sincere thank you to all our supporters and sponsors, along with our members, volunteers, and NME staff and board members who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton, to the artists whose work is the reason we come together. And of course, thank you for joining us. 
Visit newmusicedmonton.ca for programming updates and for our streaming archive of on-demand digital works presented in this series. The No Normal Podcast was created by Caitlin Sean Richards and Ian Crutchley for New Music Edmonton. I'm Oscar Tsebat.